Only five to 10% of all breast cancer comes from an inherited genetic mutation such as BRCA. That's not to minimize that if you do have a gene mutation, it can have powerful risk, but that leaves us then with this huge, big fat bell curve in the middle that is for sure 80%, possibly up to 90% of all breast cancer, which is now going to get defined by what's on the end of your fork and by other lifestyle choices that you're making. I have a lot of science and data behind this to back myself up. And if you want to, we can jump into some of it right now. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world. So hello to the Exam Roomies listening in New Zealand. Ireland, Sweden, Portugal, and Greece. We appreciate you helping us to truly make the world a healthier place. This is episode 80 of season four, number 275 overall. And it also happens to be the episode where we are kicking off our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. And joining me once again this year is Dr. Christy Funk. You just heard her say that only 5 to 10% of breast cancer cases are tied to genetics. And that means that the other 90% is attributable to what you eat and other lifestyle factors. And to take it further, it also means that the power to beat breast cancer is already in your hands. That's a lot of power, so let's use it for good. So throughout the month of October, Dr. Funk will be here teaching you all of the science, all of the data, all of the tips and everything you need to know to transform yourself into a cancer fighting super powerhouse. And you'll also hear how the invasion of high fat, unhealthy, fast food, meat heavy diets have caused a dramatic surge in breast cancer cases in countries where the rates had historically been infinitesimal compared to places where the standard American diet has been on the menu for years. You'll also hear how food can crank up the production of cancer-causing hormones and inflammation and free radical formations while suppressing your immune system. But most importantly, you will also learn about the foods that are packed with phytonutrients that launch what Dr. Funk calls plant warfare on cancer. And of course, that list includes the ever important turmeric, resveratrol, and you guessed it, soy. Plus, how do the keto, paleo, Atkins, and South Beach diets affect your risk of cancer? Well, Dr. Funk is going to clue us in on that as well. And as she says, she has plenty of science to back it up. So are you ready? Let's get excited because it's time. It's time to beat breast cancer. Dr. Funk, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Chuck. You look very dapper with your pink on pink. Love it. It's because I knew you were coming, you know? <laughs> we we coordinate before we get going on these things. You know, we know that we're going to look dapper. We're going to look glammed up. Proud. You did me proud. I like it. 
And you're doing so many people proud, devoting your life to this disease, which is how many women are currently affected? What is the current rate of breast cancer? So about 268,000 women will be diagnosed this year in the U.S. with invasive breast cancer. And there are about 3.8 million women running around that either have had or currently have breast cancer. Um, But there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, just the idea that there's 3.8 million women alive makes us realize, okay, well, we must be doing something right in that they're surviving, but why do they have it at all? And that's what you and I are going to discuss. I'm excited about this because the the thing that I remember most about the last time you and I spoke was just this overwhelmingly positive message where you said, look, you know, genetics do play a role, but it's not nearly as big of a role as so many people think, even if it runs in your family. So let's start there today. You know, how much of this is genetics and how much of this is brought on by kind of how we're living our lives today? Oh gosh. Okay. So only five to 10% of all breast cancer comes from inherited genetic mutations, such as BRCA. People have heard of BRCA usually, but there's PALB2, CHECK2. There's a number of these genes, but they account for just a small percent. That's not to minimize that if you do have a gene mutation, it can have powerful risk for you to get breast and other cancers. However, it's just not the majority of people. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you get people who just, it doesn't make sense. They're either super young. So they haven't even lived long enough, badly enough to have caused their own breast cancers with their choices. Um, or, you know, they've done everything quote unquote, right. They're thin and they exercise. They've been vegan since birth and they're like super zen out. So what's going on there. That's the small bucket of, Hmm, that just seems odd, but that leaves us then with this huge, big fat bell curve in the middle. That is for sure. 80% possibly up to 90% of all breast cancer, which is now going to get defined by what's on the end of your fork and by other lifestyle choices that you're making. So I have a lot of science and data behind this to back myself up. And if you want to, we can jump into some of it right now. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and pull up that screen while I let that 90% number marinate you we we talked about the hundreds of thousands of women who will be unfortunately diagnosed with this this year alone and you're talking about perhaps as many as 90 percent of them could you know avoid this you know and and so to me that is a mind-blowing number you've got the science to back it up and i know that we are all eager to hear exactly what it is that you have Awesome. Let's jump in. So as I just was saying, about 3.8 million breast cancer thrivers and survivors are in the U.S. right now. And as I said, 268,600 invasive breast cancer diagnoses will happen this year. But we still have work to do because year after year, over 40,000 women die from breast cancer. So before we jump into things that you can control in that big fat middle of the bell curve that I just mentioned, let me give you the top three risk factors for breast cancer that you can do nothing about. But knowing that they exist might just incentivize you to grab hold a little tighter to the things that you can control. So risk factor numero uno, about which you can do nothing, is being female. So everybody watching, one in blank women will get breast cancer in your lifetime. One in eight. 
me give you guys a second to think about that. <laughs> so one in eight women gets breast cancer versus 1.3 out of every hundred thousand men. So men, ding, ding, ding. You might not even know that you can get breast cancer. Turns out this is, this is fun. So when you're in utero, we all start out the greater sex. We're all tiny little girl fetuses. And then around week six in utero, testosterone shows up and ruins everything. But the nipples in men have already like been made. So they stick around and out for the rest of your life. And there is a little bit of a breast bud behind those nipples. In other words, there's breast tissue that is susceptible to getting breast cancer. So about 2,670 men will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and 500 will die. So this is kind of a PSA to all the men in your lives and the men listening that um, if you ever feel a lump, notice discharge, think one side of your chest is just feeling a little odd and off, get it checked out. You never know. But again, one in eight women versus 1.3 in a hundred thousand men. So being female is far and away a big risk factor, bigger than being male. Next up age. So being a female who gets older is also a risk factor. Let's look at age broken down. We just said one in eight gets breast cancer. Okay. It's not one in eight, like every day you wake up in your life or we all have it by Christmas. Okay. So what does this one in eight actually mean? If we break it down by age stratified by decade of life, have a look here with me. If your current age is in your twenties, the chances of getting breast cancer between the decade of 20 and 30 is one in 1,479. Okay. That's a far cry from one in eight. If you are 30, the chances of getting it by age 40 are one in 209, 40 to 50, one in 65, 50 to 60, one in 42, 60 to 70, one in 28, 70 to 80, ding, 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 ding. This is the highest risk decade. One in 25 gets breast cancer and then 80 to 90, one in 33. If the whole world were plant-based, we would have this go on and on until we get to the centenarians and the risk between 110 and 120 is, <laughs> but for now, uh, most people's lifetime risk just kind of peters out between 80 and 90. So all of these at one ends added together land you with one in eight or a 12.8% risk of getting breast cancer. And the risk of dying from breast cancer is one in 39 of all women. So the lifetime risk of dying from breast cancer is 2.6%. All right. Number three risk factor about which you can do nothing. What happened in that family tree of yours? So why are doctors so obsessed with family history? And by the way, if anyone ever tells you like, oh no, but that was on your dad's side. It doesn't matter. I get it. People kind of think like breasts, mom, breast cancer, and they just don't think dad's family history matter matters. It completely matters. You are half of your dad's DNA. So whatever was going on in that side of the family matters just as much as the maternal line. And when there is a strong family history of breast, ovarian, pancreatic cancers, the possibility of carrying an inherited mutation that we talked about at the top of this little show segment, such as BRCA goes way up. So how far up? Let's just use BRCA as an example. If you have this gene mutation, your lifetime risk of breast cancer can be as high as 87% and ovarian cancer 
up to 44%. So these are astronomically high numbers, and it would be really important for you to know that you might have this genetic predisposition, not to wig you out and think like, what am I going to do about it anyway? I don't want to take my breasts off or my ovaries out. You don't have to. It's a conversation though worth having, but we can screen you oh so much better if we know you've got this predisposition. So in addition to just annual mammograms, we'd be doing exams twice a year with me, screening ultrasound, breast MRI. I teach you how to do a good monthly self-breast exam. So you really just intensify the screening so that heaven forbid, if a cancer develops, we're finding it at its earliest, most curable stage. So here are the red flags for carrying a possible genetic mutation, BRCA and all of the others. You can kind of gestalt it as young, multiple, and rare. So cancer is happening to young family members with lots of cancer happening and infrequent ones like pancreatic and ovarian. But here's the full list. So two relatives on one side of the family with breast cancer prior to age 50 or ovarian cancer at any age. If you're Ashkenazi Jewish, you just need one relative with breast prior to 50 or ovarian at any age. Why is that? That's because everybody running around has a one in 500 chance of carrying a BRCA mutation, but just being of Ashkenazi descent, Eastern European descent makes it one in 40. So you only need one relative to really tip us over into a greater than 10% chance of having a gene mutation, which is basically what this list amounts to is a 10% or greater chance. If you yourself have had breast cancer prior to menopause or a triple negative subtype prior to age 60, or you've had two primary breast cancers, which means not one that recurred, but two totally separate breast cancers. If there are any men in the family with breast cancer, clearly if there's any known genetic mutation and that person has a bloodline to you, then the risk exists. If anyone's had pancreatic cancer and on that same side, there's also an ovarian or a breast cancer. And then finally, just three or more of the following going on. So like a whole bunch of cancer, breast, ovarian, pancreatic, prostate, colorectal, gastric, uterine, and melanoma. Here's the thing. It used to be prohibitively expensive to test for gene mutations. In fact, just BRCA testing prior to 2014 was all we had. And if you wanted to pay cash for it to like avoid potential insurance, like insurance discrimination or something, it was $4,500. Now, literally for $239, you can test 30 genes in the privacy of your own home. So if you're still worried about insurance things, by the way, you could order this color kit um, off of pinklotus.com slash elements. And it will be mailed. You register it online. Then it gets mailed to you. You spit in a tube and mail it back. And you can call yourself wonder woman if you want. So you can be totally anonymous with it. <laughs> it's not going to your insurance company. No one's going to know these results. All right. So this is just to see if you were listening. Oh, about five minutes ago, pop quiz. What percentage of breast cancer can be attributed to an inherited genetic mutation such as BRCA? Ding, ding, ding. The percentage of breast cancer that comes because of a gene mutation is only five to 10%. Aha. Uh-huh. Magical 87%. I know exactly what that refers to. That is the percentage of women with breast cancer who have at least one first degree or who don't have a single first degree relative with breast cancer. So 87% of breast cancer patients don't have any first degree relatives with breast cancer. 13% have someone, mom, sister, daughter. All right. Okay. Okay. And that's the answer here. Bing. 
So the percentage of women with breast cancer who have no first degree relatives with breast cancer is 87%. So basically what is this all pointing to now? So we've got our three uncontrollable risk factors, being a woman, getting older, and having a strong family history. If you really want to look at the answer, you have to look at disparities in incidence between Asian immigrants to America versus their relatives in the homeland. Japanese immigrants in Los Angeles and Hawaii after 1982, and then the Chinese in Hawaii after 1992, developed breast cancer at rates over 100% higher than Japanese and Chinese still in the homeland. That should be staggering. So the degree to which these immigrants assimilate into American culture is the degree to which they reach our breast cancer rates. And by the way, what was happening in the homeland um, was also not so hot because what what we see on this graph is that between 1990 and 2000, the death rate from breast cancer in the US dropped by 15%. Thanks, mammography. Um, And better, so earlier detection and better treatments decreased our death rate by 15%. But in Japan, in that same span of time, it increased mortality increased by 55%. So what happened? Well, okay, cancer never happens in a day, right? It kind of turns away behind the scenes for a solid five years if it's aggressive and 10 plus years if it's a slower moving one. So by the time you detect it, it's been hanging out in that body of yours for quite some time. So we got to go backwards to understand this mortality leap in the 90s we got to go back to the 70s and 80s. And what was happening then is that the growing economics and increased affluence in Japan, Singapore, and urban areas of China sparked westernized changes in their lifestyle, right? Asians started to chase our culture. And as a result, they caught our cancer. So let's talk about our culture, our style. So what was going on? In 70s and 80s and 90s, instead of laboring all day in the home, tending to children, preparing fresh meals, women around the globe started entering the workforce in droves, right? They're leading sedentary and stressful lives that expand their waistlines. They delay childbearing until later years, if at all, another risk factor. They don't breastfeed, another risk factor. And they start eating leftover pizza for lunch while you know sending off that email. And then they dash home just in time to put takeout on the table and pour a glass of wine and plop onto the couch to catch a favorite Netflix binge, right? I'm sure everyone spent a little bit of time in that club. Here's the thing, you can change. So the cancer risk factors that are under your control, diet and nutrition, alcohol, exercise, obesity. Ooh, the top four are in let's beat breast cancer campaign. And then additionally, hormone replacement therapy, environmental toxicities, and emotional stress. We're going to get to how all of these affect your risk over the next four weeks that we spend together. But today I want to talk about of all these controllable, changeable factors that are proven to elevate breast cancer risk. There is one thing in my heavily researched opinion that is more important than any other. And that's because you do it like three, four, five, six times a day. You eat. The key to using food to protect yourself from breast cancer is to understand that 
Every time you chew and swallow, you unleash weapons inside your body for better or worse that hold the power to alter the following factors inside of you. Estrogen levels, growth factors, specifically insulin-like growth factor one or IGF-1, blood vessel formation, angio, blood vessel, genesis, birth, the birth of new blood flow. Did you know that any cancer, if it, if it aspires to grow beyond the size of a tip of a ballpoint pen, must create its own blood flow. It must have angiogenesis occur in order to grow and metastasize. Food can also affect inflammation, free radical formation, and ultimately what it's all about, which is immune system function or dysfunction. Food affects each of these factors, which in turn affect what we call a tumor's microenvironment, right? The fluids and cells that bathe, support, and fuel cancers or seeks to destroy them, right? There's so much power at the end of your fork. You just chew and swallow, but literally you're releasing chemicals inside your bloodstream that either stoke cancer or choke cancer. And I want you to choke it. So Let's talk a little bit more about what's happening when you eat. I want you to understand this battleground of oxidative stress inside your body. Free radicals, okay? They're actually useful. Turns out they help us breathe, combat infection, and can actually kill the cancer cells they help cause, which is ironic, but also useful. So here's the thing on our little scale here. If more bad free radicals hang around, then there is good antioxidants to stop the oxidant behavior, then oxidative stress results. And when this imbalance persists day after day, year after year, your body's cells and your DNA just get too beat up, right? And sickness results. Basically, whatever organs these free radicals injure the most frequently and the most thoroughly determines what diseases you're going to get. So if it's in your blood vessels, heart disease. If it's in your muscles, you're chronically fatigued or have fibromyalgia. If it's in your brain, uh, oh yeah, you get dementia or Alzheimer's. And then of course, if there's excessive free radical damage in your breast, it should hit you then that if you could eliminate oxidative stress, you just might live forever. This is a fun, sad tale, standard American diet tale. So. This study took a bunch of hyperlipidemic men and women. So they have high lipids, right? And they looked, they fed them a meal, and then they looked hourly at what happened to their LDL cholesterol, their oxidized cholesterol in a response to that meal as a measurement of the oxidative stress inside their bodies. Okay. So they take all these people and they give them like steak and eggs for breakfast or pancakes and bacon. And then watch this. This is, this is. Uh, 180 minutes, right? So their cholesterol levels go up, up, up. And three hours later, boom, it's lunchtime. Let's get a hamburger and fries and measure the LDL cholesterol up, 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 bam, dinner. This has just been a steady incline all day long of oxidative stress. These poor people, when they go to bed, they suddenly are going to have fewer antioxidants to combat this oxidative stress than when they woke up because look at the level and where it's going. But here's the fascinating part of the study. Same people, next day, same sad meal, and one change. A cup of strawberries. And boom, 
same pancakes and bacon, but just the strawberries were so radically affected at nullifying all of the oxidative stress that they actually were doing the opposite and building up health inside that body. And then lunch comes along and they eat again, a hamburger and fries, but one cup of strawberries. And now all oh, the oxidative stress, maybe just a little bit too much. So we're back to baseline. But by the time dinner rolls around, you're no worse for the wear but you could have been better, right? Like what if, what if that meal had been steel cut oats and a bunch of berries and two tablespoons of ground flax seeds with some soy milk, right? Now with this awesome plant-based breakfast, you'd be building up health instead of tearing it down all day long, right? Because that little oxidative stress battle would be like a blip on the radar. And now these phytochemicals that you just chewed and swallowed in your bloodstream, remember the bathtub, the tumor cell microenvironment would be, would be combating whatever it is that you were building up, right? It could melt away plaque and arteries. It could melt away pounds on your waistline. It could melt away cancer cells that were just beginning to form inside your breast. Plant nutrients, phytonutrients equal plant warfare. You know, when I was in medical school, we didn't get one second of any of this kind of nutrition stuff, literally. So it kind of excites me when I'm able to educate physicians who have no idea about this stuff, because it's kind of speaking their language. We hearken back to organic chemistry and realize, wait, there are these chemical structures that you can draw out with little octagons and connect them together and put a little OH in here and there. And basically it educates physicians in a way that they are a language that they speak, which then makes the food connection to illness and health that much stronger. That's at least what did it for me when I was doing all my studying into nutritional science to write my book, Breast the Owner's Manual. I just went in there, the science, to prove that the way I ate was correct, which was like Mediterranean diet style, but lots of lean meats, chicken, turkey, fish, so much fish. I'm sure my husband and I were radioactive. And I was like, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to check my mercury levels. Cause I don't want to know. I don't want to stop eating sashimi. Um, and bam, when I got into that world, it made so much sense to me. And I was blown away by the rock solid evidence that animal protein and animal fat creates a cellular response inside everybody's body that tears down health. It elevates estrogen. It elevates IGF-1. It increases angiogenesis. It increases inflammation, free radical formation, that whole list that I showed you. Plants, on the other hand, have chemicals that change the bathtub. They take away the rubber ducky and the scented bath salts. And now it's like the cancer cells just sitting in plain water. And it's like, uh, this isn't any fun. I guess I'll die now. And that's exactly what it does. So here are in just a little list of the examples. So here on the left, you've got the powerful chemical name and the food that it's coming from. So curcumin has anti-estrogenic, anti-carcinogenic properties in turmeric. Epigallocatechin gallate, EGCG, is the magic in green tea. Resveratrol is in the skin of red grapes and in red wine. Omega-3 fatty acids found in flax seeds and avocado, procyanidins and berries, the genistein and soy, the lycopene in tomatoes, the anthocyanidins and apples, and the limonene and oranges. If you really want to defeat cancer, then eat like you mean it. Check this out. Okay. Insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. It has only one mission in life, right? It's just screaming at everything to grow. 
grow, 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 which is super useful if you're a kid that needs to grow up. But um, we only get so tall, right? And our hands only get so big. So what's IGF doing for the rest of your life? Well, actually, we turn over about 50 billion cells a day and they need replacing and post-exercise muscles need repairing and brain cells need protecting. And IGF-1, thankfully, does all of that for us. But once these tasks are complete, however, if there's excess IGF-1 flying around, then it's just screaming at cells to grow and grow they will, right? Grow plaque in the arteries, grow fat around your waist, grow cells into cancer, grow that cancer into metastases, into the lung and liver and brain and bone. Wow. Someone better settle that IGF-1 down. Wait, uh, how do you make I excess IGF-1? Ah, oh, thanks for asking. Let me answer that with a study. All right, so... This study followed over 6,000 adults over the age of 50 for 18 years. And what they found is that at ages 50 to 65, consumption of higher animal protein levels as opposed to lower levels led to an astounding 430% increase in cancer death and a 7,300% increase in type 2 diabetes. That's 74 times. So I'd like to point out that this is high versus low animal protein. It's not high versus no animal protein. So imagine how much higher the numbers would have been if you were able to do that comparison. And it turns out in the study that IGF-1 emerged as an important moderator of the association between protein consumption and mortality. Since wherever protein went, IGF-1 levels were sure to follow, just like Mary and her little lamb. And that would be especially true if Mary ate her lamb. <laughs> get it? Okay. Anyway, notably, no such elevations in risk happened with proteins derived from plants. So only animals, you can tofu it up. All right. So speaking of IGF-1, cancer and diabetes, let me introduce you to some people in Ecuador. I mean, they could be anywhere, but they just turn out to be mostly in Ecuador um, who have Laron syndrome. If you could not respond to IGF-1 at all, you would have Laron syndrome, and you would be very short, which makes sense since you wouldn't have anyone yelling at you to grow when you were a kid. But guess what else you wouldn't have? Cancer. Not one person with IGF-1 deficiency has ever gotten breast cancer. In fact, only one person with Laron syndrome has ever gotten any type of cancer, and it was ovarian cancer in 2017, and she did great. But other than that, no one's ever gotten cancer. That's astounding. Want to know another astounding fact? No one with Laron syndrome ever gets type 2 diabetes. Okay, so clearly the IGF-1 connection to cancer and to type 2 diabetes is like inextricably tied and bound. It contributes so substantially to the causation of all cancer and all diabetes that you should spend the rest of your life trying to eliminate excess IGF-1 from your bodies because that's what's leading to cancer and type 2 diabetes. IGF-1 creates that micro environment that's proven conducive to breast cancer. It increases breast cancer invasiveness. And it actually is true that women with high circulating levels of IGF-1 have 38% more estrogen-driven breast cancers than those with low IGF-1. Hmm. Now, I can tell you 
how to lower IGF-1 and how to make more of an IGF-1 binding protein. It's kind of like a body snatcher that retires IGF-1 from circulation. Just do what this group of obese women did following the Pritikin plan. So we take 50 obese women and they, oh, before you go away and do what I'm about to tell you to do, let me draw your blood. We're going to draw the blood and measure IGF-1 levels and IGF-1 binding protein levels. And then we're going to take your blood and we're going to drip it on a Petri dish filled with human breast cancer cells. Mm, and I see a few cells die because you're alive. So your immune system can do a little something, something. Now you're going to go away and you're going to eat a low fat, 10 to 15% of daily calories, high fiber, whole food plant-based diet with daily exercise classes. That's literally like 30 minutes of sauntering fast. Okay. So I guess that's a oxymoron. If you saunter, you're not going that fast, but you know, you get the idea. It wasn't like super sweaty, vigorous exercise. It was just doing some moving people and they go away for 12 years. No, um, for 12 months, no, uh, 12 weeks. Oh, 12 days. And then they come back and 12 days later, their blood gets strong. IGF-1 levels have plummeted, binding protein skyrocketed. And now we take some blood and drip it on a fresh Petri dish filled with human breast cancer cells. And whew, the vast majority of breast cancer cells died on the spot. In less than two weeks, these women transform their blood into a cancer kicking machine. And so can you, this is my favorite study to share with patients who literally just come to me feeling so defeated. They're like, come on doc, I'm 68, I'm overweight. Now I have breast cancer. It's too late for me. No sister, give me 12 days. Oh doc, so convincing, but I do love me some meat. What about keto, paleo, Atkins, South Beach? Because, you know, people lose weight on those diets, you know. Uh-huh, they do. But I'm not even going to get into the fact that eating meat and dairy leads to horrific animal cruelty, water pollution, water scarcity. I mean, it takes 5,000 gallons about of water to make a one-pound beef patty. Pesticide and antibiotic overuse, the emergence of antibiotic-resistant superbugs, did you know that 80% of all antibiotics on earth are used on the animals we eat because their conditions are so skank that if they didn't get the antibiotics, your plate would be filled with pus. I'm not talking about that, but I'm not talking about how big Aggie accounts for 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And did you know that more than all transportation sources combined is less than 30%? Eating animals accounts for 90% of all deforestation, releasing 50 billion tons of carbon into the sky, leading to climate change, biodiversity loss, ocean dead zones, planet destruction, exacerbation of world hunger. Huh? How does that work? Well, 82% of starving children live where livestock consume the food. And then the Westerners consume the livestock. I'm not talking about catastrophic natural disasters such as heat waves, floods, wildfires, melting ice caps, and irony upon irony, the end of life on this planet. Despite the fact that animal agriculture is the number one contributor to all of those stated atrocities, I'm not even going to say that any of that is a reason to avoid low carb meat centric diets like keto. I'm just going to give you one reason. Your own life, the LAD left anterior descending artery, AKA the widow maker. Now, while it's true that high protein, low carb diets generally result in weight loss and can improve diabetes, 
This is only looking at very short-term parameters. What we really need are long-term studies continuing this pretty unsustainable diet for decades or more, and then seeing how your, it's more than a hemoglobin A1C. You need to do an oral glucose tolerance test. You need to see how your body functions in response to the stress of sugar, not just plucking out your hemoglobin A1C and seeing that it's down. You need to do coronary angiography. See what's really happening to the blood flow inside those arteries, a calcium artery score. All right. So in a randomized controlled trial published in July, 1990, Hiro Dean Ornish public, wait, okay. July, 1990. I wanted to say something about that. I went to medical school in 1992. Okay. And I didn't hear a peep about this study that is revolutionary. If you don't already know what you're about to find out. And in 92, that no one was talking about it, at least not in my medical school. I'm pretty sure not in any medical school because it wasn't until 2017, 20 years later, or wait, 30, I can do math. That's like basically 30 years later when I was again, doing nutritional science research for my book that I came across this revolutionary study. So Dean Ornish conducted a prospective randomized controlled trial to determine whether diet and lifestyle changes could affect coronary atherosclerosis, right? So he took a bunch of patients and oh, before you go away and we have our control group and our treatment group, let me do a little quantitative coronary angiography, inject some dye in there and it's barely getting by through here, right? So now we're going to have half of you randomized to just continue on with life as usual, the way your doctors are, you know, show up for your visits and maybe tinker with the meds, but you, the other group, we're going to eat largely a vegetarian diet and throw in some lifestyle changes like daily exercise, try to cut down on the smoking and do some uh, stress reduction through meditation and group therapy. Then they come back one year later, bam, look at that arteries wide open. Okay. Not every single one, but 82% of the experimental group had an average change toward regression with arteries getting more and more blood flow without a single change in medication, without any surgery and everybody else in that control group, those that were able to come back anyway, they all showed progression of these arterial clots. So Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, oh, sorry, I got that weird. I'll just make that prettier. Okay. Was on the opposite side of the country to Dean Ornish back in the nineties. And this, uh, it was pre-internet, right? So they had no idea that they were both kind of doing the exact same thing. And, um, Dr. Essie, I call him Essie because his family does. And one time I just jumped right into his kitchen and pretended to be part of the family. They didn't seem to notice because there's a lot of those Esselstyns. All right. So anyway, he published this book in 2007, detailing the astounding results of his 20 year plus nutritional study on 200 cardiac cripples, the longest study of its kind ever conducted. And boom, this should start looking familiar. This kind of moth eaten artery here, bam, wide open. These angiograms to me, basically sign, seal and deliver the plant-based prescription with just conviction and proof. So today, you know, there's only one diet in the history of the world that has been scientifically proven to slow, stop, and even beep, 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 reverse 
in some cases, the number one killer of you and everyone you love, heart disease. And it also has been proven to slow stop and reverse all of our biggest killers, including stroke, Alzheimer's, diabetes, obesity, and cancer. So when bacon and bulletproof coffee can do all of that with a 20 plus nutritional, 20 year plus nutritional study, then keto lovers, you will have my attention. Now I often get asked, okay, I'm convinced, but wow, how do I, where am I going to get my protein? Okay, people, the elephant, the rhino, the hippo, and all the meats that you eat for protein, like cows, pigs, chickens, deer, and elk are herbivores. So those honking animals can get plenty of protein. You only need about 0.36 grams per pound of body weight, which amounts to for your average woman, about 50 grams a day. So here's a tidy list of plant-based protein sources, seitan, which is wheat gluten. It's like a meaty, chewy substitute for meats, um, but not good for my celiacs out there because it is wheat gluten, but seitan, just a third of a cup has 21 grams of protein. Boom. You're almost halfway there with a third of a cup. Soy, tempeh, tofu, edamame, miso, half a cup, 20 grams lentils, one cup cooked, 18 grams, beans, kidney, pinto, black, white, green, garbanzo, one cup, 15 grams, nuts or nut butters, almond, walnut, cashew, pistachio, Brazil, and seeds like sunflower, sesame, flax, pumpkin, chia, hemp, a quarter cup, seven to 10 grams of protein, green peas, a cup of that, eight grams, quinoa, half a cup of cooked quinoa, seven to nine grams, one cup of wild rice, 6.5 grams, steel cut oats, a quarter cup dry, five grams of protein. You can do it people. And by the way, pretty much everybody in America does, because I don't think anybody's been diagnosed with quashi or core, uh, for at least a century. And that would be malnutrition from a lack of protein. There's no quashi or core happening at any hospital anywhere. All right. So I'm going to wrap it up for today's talk. Um, with uh, stop eating meat. And if you want to really deep dive into the science behind all of this, I invite all of you to join me at my cancer kicking summit, which is available virtually right now, or live at the Terranea Resort in Palos Verdes, October 16th and 17th. Also, if you want to dive into the science and read it in black and white, I've got my book, Breast the Owner's Manual, the said book that made me do all the deep diving to come out whole food plant-based. And especially anybody interested in maximally reducing her risk should join this entirely free online community called Pink Lotus Power Up. They're about 40,000 members and it's bursting with ways to connect with others, to educate yourself, to fundraise and more. Um, you don't have to have breast cancer to join, but if you happen to have breast cancer, I encourage all of you thrivers or those newly diagnosed to please join breast buddies. So again, entirely free. This community is about 5,000 strong. And what it does is it pairs women who have been there, done that with breast cancer with those who are newly diagnosed purely for the purposes of psychosocial support and community. So it pairs you age for age, stage for stage, treatment for treatment. So you could be like, okay, I'm 47 years old. I need you to do chemotherapy and a mastectomy and just like match.com for breasts up pops all the women who are 
plus or minus five years from 47 plus who did chemo and had a mastectomy. And then you can read a little bit and be like, oh my gosh, she has a nine-year-old son too. I want to talk to her. And she's there because she wants to talk to you. So explore power up. There's so much, so much deep connection and deep uh, wisdom that is in that entire community. Please join. Again, it's totally free. And finally, Pink Lotus has an online store called Elements. And in Elements, this has become a leading online women's health and breast cancer store because everything in here, of course, is vegan. And it's very intelligently, uniquely formulated. Many of these products actually have randomized controlled trials behind them. And they all serve a very dedicated purpose of addressing the real needs of women before, during, or after a breast cancer diagnosis. So... That's what I've got today for us, Chuck. Ooh, that there is a lot to unpack with uh, everything that you you just presented there. Um, my goodness, and and so the thing that I, I want to follow up with you on is I made a note here. So at the beginning, you you said ninety percent of cases you estimate are preventable. And so when you, you gave that number, the unfortunate number of the number of women who will die every year from breast cancer, that was in the ballpark of 41,000. If 90% of those cases are preventable, that means that more than 35,000 of those deaths then would be preventable. Is that correct? That's correct. And we're talking year after year after year, 35,000 saved, saved, saved. These are you know, sisters, mothers, daughters, friends, and oftentimes in the most productive and robust years of their lives, this, this cancer diagnosis is so disruptive, the ripple effect to the family, the children, the community around women would become just like a laughable little like bing, in one ripple and done, right? If we could transform our eating. That is an enormous reduction in the number of cases. And we're going to talk about eating in the next episode. Uh, you you have something special cooked up, uh, your top 12 breast superfoods, which I'm, I'm like stoked for. <laughs> but my final question to you is this, right? So a lot of what it is that you talked about during your presentation is still such a new concept for so many people, you know, whether it's the patient or the doctors themselves or family members. And I know that you and I have talked about how when you were writing breast, the owner's manual, it was like that light bulb went off in, in your head. Like you had that aha moment, but like, let's flash back to before that book, mm -hmm. let's put yourself now in, in, in the mindset of Christy Funk pre breast, the owner's manual. And somebody was giving you this information initially, right? What would your reaction be? Because there are still so many skeptics out there, right? So, you know, how do you think you would have received this initially? And then what helped get you like over that hurdle? Like what made the light bulb go off for you? I think there's power in the repetitiveness of study after study after study that makes me think, okay, this is irrefutable. This is undeniable. And so, you know, just showing me one study, like the Lern syndrome, like talking about the people in Ecuador, right. Who have IGF one deficiency and never, ever get cancer or type two diabetes. That would be astounding and interesting, but almost dismissible as a one-off like, okay, well that's, there might be something else at play here and you just don't understand, but it was the repetitive nature of every time I looked at studies that did um, like power in numbers. So big studies, at least, you know, 
10,000 people or more over a long period of time, it always came down to a whole food plant-based diet as being superior to any kind of carnivorous diet. I think an initial reaction, once you absorb the information and agree with it, is a little bit like, what? If this were so important, how come I didn't hear a peep about it, right? In med school and training and beyond. And that's when you just realize there's trillions of dollars at stake. And there's a massive movement amidst these industries, be it from big beef or big chicken or cheese or uh, dairy that is hell bent on keeping you just a little bit confused and distracted so that you're like, Oh, forget it. Just give me the turkey sandwich. <laughs> you know, just the whole, it's been talked about in these circles before, but it's big news for some people to hear how ridiculously similar their playbook is to the tobacco industry, right? So today you would laugh at anybody who thinks smoking can cure asthma, but that's what they were told in the forties and fifties and sixties. Like, Hey, low sex drive, smoke a cigarette. Do you have asthma? Smoke a cigarette. You have a chronic cough. This one's menthol is soothing on your throat. Smoke these. So <laughs> that, that same kind of confusion though, is propagated in the media now regarding meat. I mean, every commercial makes it look so like super sexy to like drizzle cheese on your nachos at some fast food restaurant. And um, there's a, we can, we can talk about it. I mean, Dairy Management Inc. is part of the government whose sole purpose it is, is to spend millions of dollars to infuse more milk, AKA cheese into the American diet year after year. That is their purpose is to make us eat more cheese because they need, this is the weirdest thing in the world. The same governing body that's responsible for our food plate. Thank you, PCRM for making it so clear what is supposed to be there and not, but um, the, the same government body that tells you what's healthy to eat and not is the same one responsible for making sure the agriculture industry flourishes. So, I mean, this is ridiculous. It's like, um, you're a shepherd and I'm going to tell you, here are your sheep. I want you to guard them with your lives. They mean so much to me. Oh, wait, you have another job too. I forgot to tell you. There are these hungry, starving, drooling, snapping wolves over here and you need to feed them also. Oh, and by the way, they only eat sheep. Mm. You know, we're the sheep, right? Boy. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and the thing, let me, let me double down on what it is that you're saying there, because the, before this um, I, I've, I've talked about this a little bit before I was a reporter for CBS news radio, the, the station here uh, where I'm in Washington, DC. And then later I did some anchoring for NBC news radio and I operate in the world of fact. And so when Dr. Funk, when you were talking specifically about dairy management, Inc., one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done here on the show was when Dr. Neil Barnard and I sat down and we went through this list of, of correspondence and documents and research from Dairy Management Inc. Uh, that we filed a FOIA request to acquire and to see just how powerful of an industry dairy is to get people, in fact, to eat more cheese is just mind-blowing and the fact that this is the government that is doing it is even more it's it's like jaw-dropping right to use that cliche it literally is jaw-dropping and i know that it does sound a little bit strange to people who haven't heard it the first time like oh you know these are just some wacky conspiracy nuts but 
No. I mean, the documents are here. The New York Times has published them. And yet it's still not being talked about. And because it's not being talked about, it is dismissed a lot of times the first time that you hear it. So um, that's why it's important that you and I are doing shows like this today to keep beating that drum, just as you were saying. Absolutely. And I'm so delighted to have been here today to beat that drum with you. Yeah, and I'm delighted because down in the show description, the episode notes, uh, there is a link to pinklotus.com for the elements, for power up, for breast buddies. You can also uh, find a link there to your cancer kicking summit that's coming up. Very excited about that, as well as uh, to pick up a copy of Breast the Owner's Manual, which should be on every bookshelf in America, quite frankly. Um, So Dr. Funk, thank you very much for being here, but this is just part one because Let's Beat Breast Cancer rolls on all month long and next up the top 12 breast superfoods i'm stoked for this so thank you very much we will talk again soon all right talk to you soon thanks links to everything dr funk's cancer kicking summit her book, and to take the Let's Beat Breast Cancer Challenge, they are all in the episode notes right now. And don't forget, when you sign up for free to take that challenge, you will also receive a complimentary digital goodie bag filled with even more cancer-fighting tools, including that e-cookbook with some recipes that will knock your socks right off. And think about this. Those tools, that knowledge, everything that Dr. Funk and I talked about here today, that's science. That is why she says up to 90% of breast cancer cases can be prevented. And that means that of the 41,000 women who will die of breast cancer this year, 35,000 of them, sisters, mothers, wives, they could still be here with us, living a long and healthy life. Those are incredible numbers. And all month long, we are going to be continuing our conversation about breast cancer, sharing everything as far and as wide as we possibly can. And we're gonna do it in some fun ways too. So get excited because next week is the top 12 breast superfoods. But before that even, Dr. Funk is going to be back with us here on the exam room live this week. And we're gonna be opening up the doctor's mailbag and that means she'll be answering your questions. And the show premieres live on YouTube and on Facebook at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Wednesday. And then you'll get to hear it right back here on the podcast, First Thing Thursday. So if you haven't already subscribed to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee yet on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, really wherever shows are available, please go ahead and do that right now and also leave a five-star rating so that we can all save lives and beat breast cancer together. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Christy Funk for joining us here today and throughout the month of October. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. 
Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based and let's beat breast cancer. <laughs> <laughs>